AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. Give your glucose alerts and readings from the G7. Do not match symptoms or expectations. Use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush Halloween Frighttober continuation here with a little mini round table with Paul and Robert Lamb. Hey, how's it going? Hey, going thanks good. for having me. Yeah, so everyone knows Paul. I think, uh, Robert, were you on last Halloween at all? I think la- last year was, was, was too crazy and I wasn't able to make it. I think it was the year before that that uh, okay. my podcast partner Joe and I came on. Right. So tell everyone what you do and what's out there that they can listen to, uh, aside from, you know, your, your staple show. Oh, well, I, I mean, it's pretty much the, the staple show is the main thing right now. We, we were doing invention and we, we kind of sunset that one. So now it's, it, we're focusing in on stuff to blow your mind. We're trying to bust that out into, uh, uh, ooh, if if our boss has his way, a six days a week show. So <laughs> is, that, uh, is that what's going on? <laughs> that's that's what the the talk is. So um, oh, you know, goodness. we'll probably bust out some you know stick to our core episodes that deal with science and culture, but uh-huh. maybe have some more laid back content as well that gotcha. will have part of the weekly offering. All right. Well, this show is all about laid back content, right, Paul? Awesome. Absolutely. I love it. So dudes, what we're going to do is something that I've never done before, which is to dive into the world of the uh, universal classic monsters. And we watched uh, Frankenstein, 1931 Frankenstein, which we'll get to shortly. But uh, we wanted to talk a little bit at first about this, uh, what, what it turns out was the first shared universe in movie history back in starting in the early 1930s. 
Um, I guess actually sort of mid twenties is when it really started with the hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, but they consider the, uh, I think the very first horror film ever made to be the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. And that was, um, a silent film from 1925. Yeah. Which, uh, I actually have not. Have you guys seen it? I have not. So I can't talk too much about it. I have it. never watched it. No. No. I mean, this is a, is a world I don't know much about. Um, as far as the, you know, you read down the laundry list and it's the classics. It's Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy, invisible man, the Wolfman, creature from the, the black lagoon. And it feels like it's weird for someone who's never really sat down and watched these old films. Somehow they're still part of the fabric of my life and as a movie lover. And when I sat down to watch this one today, I was like, wait a minute, but I've never actually seen any of these. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of neat. I was thinking the same thing about how I'd never seen the original Frankenstein until I sat down to watch it for this show, uh-huh. uh, like last night. And uh, and yet there's so much of it that you just end up absorbing through popular culture. And in a, in a way, these these films and these visions of these these horror icons are kind of like the old gods, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you don't actually worship them, you worship something that's kind of uh, passed down from them. What about you, Paul? Had you seen any of these previously? Yeah, I went through probably, I think maybe around Halloween last year, I went through and watched a handful of these classic horror films, uh, mainly just because I knew, you know, they were uh, well-regarded and... Um, they were so famous and I had never really seen any of them. I think I mentioned to you guys, I'm as a rule, not much of a horror guy traditionally, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with some exceptions, but, um, I really wanted to check out these just because they've influenced, um, so much cinema. So I think last year when I first sat down to watch them, I watched, uh, I think I started, I kind of went in chronological order. And so I watched Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy, invisible man, and Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, so wow. I've not seen I've not seen Phantom of the Opera or Wolfman or Creature mm-hmm. from the Black Lagoon, which I think all those right there that I've just listed are kind of considered like the 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 super classics. Even though there's like dozens more that could be categorized as these Universal Monsters films. And um, yeah, I think I I was the one who suggested that we watch Frankenstein for this, just because I think uh, it it's sort of the maybe the best representation of what these films can be, even though, um, you know, I'm a fan of all of them, but they are of varying degrees of, of quality <laughs> in my opinion. And personally, I find that, um, like, uh, the, the very first ones to be released, Dracula and the mummy, or I guess Frankenstein was in between those, but Dracula and the mummy, I remember watching and thinking, man, these are like, okay but they're very creaky and very of their time and very much uh the issue i think is that these are all very early sound films and around this time movies around this time hadn't quite figured out how to use sound in film and so you even see in frankenstein's like there's almost no soundtrack except maybe at the beginning and the end i know And, and we'll talk about that when it comes up but it uh that was striking to me how uh, it really stood out in a lot of moments that I think we as a modern audience rely on these audio cues to feel a certain way, to be scared, to be happy. Um, it, 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 there was a hole there for me. However, I will say the, the, the music in Frankenstein, like the opening music, I, I found it kind of jarring in a way. It's very, I don't know if it's horns or what. So I was kind of 
thankful that it didn't keep showing up in the film. Um, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's just me and the, the sort of soundtracks I, I tend to steer toward. Yeah, I think it was just, uh, I think there were a few notable scenes where we're so used to hearing something like the creation scene. Um, and like I said, it's sort of those cues that you don't realize as a moviegoer that you're so sort of trained to, to pick up on. And when it wasn't there, I was, I missed it a little bit, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think I think Frankenstein, as opposed to some of the other ones of this time, benefits a little bit because um, as the movie goes on, there's lots of elements of the soundtrack that do kind of add atmosphere. I think, you know, during the whole like wedding sequence, you have the, the music being played in the um, town square, mm-hmm. sort of like the wedding music. And then when they go kind of to hunt down Frankenstein, you just have lots of um, atmospheric noise of the the villagers like screaming and shouting and the sounds of the fire crackling. Whereas I think like, I remember watching, especially Dracula and the mummy, those stretches of silence are much longer in those films. And it just makes them like very awkward, you know, especially cause they're recording with, you know, not, st- or at the time probably state of the art audio equipment, but you know, it's like you can sort of hear the hiss of the soundtrack mm-hmm. of just the, the audio tape, you know, and it's it, it just requires a bit of calibration on the viewer, I think, to sort of orient yourself to, oh, this is just how these films were at this time. Yeah. I mean, when you're watching movies made in the 1930s, you need to watch them through a different lens. You can't come in as a modern film goer and expect to be riveted in quite the same way. Uh, there is a, a bit of uh, there's a bit of an Ed Woodian quality to some of this stuff. Uh, and I think some of it is supposed to have a bit of a sense of humor, but, and in fact, they even went full on comedy. Um, I was looking through sort of the history of the UCM and you mentioned dozens of movies, Paul, you know, they had their staples, like you said, with mummy phantom, Dracula, Frankenstein, uh, uh, werewolf, Wolfman. Uh, but then they, I mean, there were sequels, there were, there were remakes like six and eight years later, uh, they would re-release them into the theaters years later, like the very same movies to great success. And they were just printing money, basically. Uh, the the profits and the grosses they were making in today dollars is pretty staggering. Yeah. And like you said, with going full on comedy, like I think late, much later, there's like Abbott and Costello meet yeah. Frankenstein and stuff <laughs> like that, which I've not seen, but... Well, you know, they were, like I said, they were printing money and Abbott and Costello were huge. So it sort of made sense. Now, I was reading a little bit about the director, James Whale, uh, Frankenstein and the the Bride of Frankenstein. And uh, the source I was looking at pointed out that he did like to use camp occasionally in his films. And I didn't pick up on it as much in Frankenstein itself. But there are moments in Bride of Frankenstein where, you know, it'll uh, there'll be this like moment with uh, somebody reacting hysterically to the monster. And it it seems pretty clear they were going he was going for something over the top and mm-hmm. perhaps comedic, at least in those small moments. Yeah, um, I th- I th- there was one moment in Frankenstein too, and those two. I looked at a at some somebody did a ranking online of all the UCM movies, and they ranked Bride of Frankenstein as the best, and Frankenstein is number two, and I think Dracula was down to four or five. Uh, and I saw where Lugosi wanted to play um, Henry Frankenstein, uh, you know, Doctor Frankenstein. But they said, no, you've got, if you're going to play anyone, you got to play the monster. And apparently they did a makeup test that was, went very, very poorly. And so he got the heck out of there and Boris Karloff stepped in to, uh, you know, and became sort of a legend in the making. 
And Karloff is great in it. Uh, you know, there there's some wonderful small moments in, in just the original Frankenstein uh, with him as the monster. Not so much maybe the grunting and fire bad stuff, but the, like that scene <laughs> where he's reaching up at the sunlight. Like uh-huh. there's something kind of, there's something legitimately haunting about that scene. I'd never seen that before. Like it's not one of these moments that I feel like has been, uh, you know, just launched at you time and time again in popular culture. Yeah, for sure. What do you think, Paul? Over the top? I know I agree with with Robert 100%. I think Karloff's performance adds so much pathos to this character that could easily go over the top, you know, if done wrongly. And um, yeah, that moment where he's grasping, reaching towards the light is one of them. And I do think also, Robert, you mentioned some of the noises he makes, mm-hmm. the grunting and the moaning. I think, you know, those add actually a lot because it reminds you just how much he's very much like a child, you know? Yeah. And he has sort of a child's mental development. And to me, they add a lot of, uh, my emotional response comes a lot from some of those, those noises he makes. Yeah, there are times when he's being uh, like harassed by what is it, Fritz, the assistant, and it almost looks like he's he's la- like it almost looks like he's cracking up, right? Yeah. But then you realize, no, this this must be intentional. It's kind of like he is this this like he's, he's even he's like a feral child, you know. He has no uh, n- no ability to properly process what's happening to him, so it makes sense that he's not even making necessarily you know completely human reactions to these things. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you will always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can even alert you before you go too low or when you're too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see, like more time and range and lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Let's talk about Fritz for a second. 
<laughs> I think this is one of the moments that maybe there was some intended comedy um, or maybe not. It's hard to tell, like when you're watching a movie from 1931, it, but this, this certainly the moment where Fritz goes in to steal the brain and there's yes. and there's two brains. There's good brain and and bad brain. Uh-huh. And uh, he he there's like a a gong. It sounds like clanging in the background, and it scares him. And he drops the jar with the good brain in it, and and just is kind of like, oh, well, I'll get the other brain. <laughs> and I laughed out loud. I thought that was a really kind of fun moment. And I, I want to think that they thought it was a fun moment. Oh, surely, surely, yeah. That was a great. That was great. <laughs> and also just the fact that like <laughs> the brains are set out just right there for somebody to steal. And uh-huh. it's like very clearly labeled. This is the good brain. This is the bad brain. So if anyone wants to steal them, right here they are. Yeah. That was pretty yeah. great. And Fritz, oh boy. I mean, can we agree that he's the worst assistant in the history of assistants? Yeah. Yeah. He, he doesn't, he barely does what he's told. Uh, and, and then winds up getting himself killed by the monster because he's harassing it too much. Uh, just harassing it like crazy. He's yeah, and even right after he's told him, he's like, "Don't use this fire. Like, put the torch down. You're scaring him, basically." And he leaves, and he goes right back in there with that fucking torch. And <laughs> I'm just like, "Where did Fritz come from? Who is this guy even? Do we know? Is there any background on Fritz?" Um, you know, I I, I don't know. I don't think there's a Fritz in the novel. Uh, I mean, of course, of course. Then again, this whole film is just kind of inspired by Frankenstein and it's right. really not an attempt to directly adapt it. He's kind of that, that, that archetypical character, that Igor character that we come uh-huh. to associate <laughs> with the brand later, but he's not particularly hunchbacky, you know, in the sense that we, we want that character to be like, you want a, a Peter Laurie type figure <laughs> in that role. And like the, the character playing Fritz isn't even like that charismatic or, um, or, or interesting. Yeah, I just kept wondering why Fritz had that gig. And like, was he an experiment gone wrong or something, uh, possibly in Dr. Frankenstein's past, and he felt like he needed to keep him around? Or also just the fact that the experiments Henry Frankenstein is perf- are performing are, uh, let's, shall we say, not above board. Mm-hmm. And so he probably <laughs> needs somebody with... Uh, you know, morals and a sense of uh, being willing, being flexible on what he's willing to do because, you know, the the opening scene, they're literally, literally stealing uh, a, a dead body that was buried not 10 minutes before <laughs> we we open mm-hmm. at the funeral and they, yeah. they dig up the body right after. Yeah. That scene looks so great too. Uh, and it really, um, really made me appreciate what they did on stages back then uh, and sort of reminded me of Ed Wood, how they would create these big outdoor, you know, these huge piles of dirt in a cemetery and these beautifully lit um, cloud, uh, painted cloud backgrounds. Uh, and it really, really does look great. Uh, I love that stuff. The the lighting by torch and, and lamplight, it all looked really, really good, I thought. Yeah, I think it's so effective. And even though when you watch it, there's no there's no mystery. Like, you know, it's, it's clearly a soundstage. It's, it's not attempting necessarily to, to fool you into thinking it's, they're on a real, real location somewhere. Mm-hmm. And yet it still works. And I especially love how, how disturbing the imagery is in that opening sequence, because it even has, you know, like the, the Christian iconography, the, the crucified Jesus off to the side, you know, and just the fact that we're witnessing a funeral and you see them, uh, you see the the guy digging, you know, throwing the dirt on the grave. Um, 
I think like for somebody like me who is raised like Catholic and going to going to church every Sunday and just like the idea of the the rituals and the iconography made this opening scene very effective for me. Yeah, it was funny too. The uh, that pan across and it was just panning across the different humans at the funeral, and then it was like, oh, and there's a skeleton on a cross just hanging yeah. out there in the background. <laughs> I love those interiors as well, though. Those, uh, you know, all the shots of the, the Fra- Frankenstein's tower. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And that, that was something that really struck me is um, something you don't see anymore. Like you rarely, especially on a, on a stage, the whole point is you don't see the ceiling because there is none. It's, you know, lattice work of lights and microphones and stuff like that. And you never see ceilings of interiors. And they shot this movie in a very tall way. Um, the the tower stuff looks amazing. These huge, the you know, tall laboratory stuff. And then just the regular interior of, I guess it was Baron Frankenstein's uh, castle or house or whatever. I mean, all that stuff is just amazing. It's overwhelming how big it was. And yeah, just the way it's, the way it's shot and the way it's lit. Uh, I think, you know, James Whale said himself, like it's very indebted to sort of that German expressionism. You know, the, big shadows on the walls. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the tall sets that kind of had that Gothic architectural style. Yeah. And you get extreme angles too, when you have that kind of height and they definitely played a lot with that. And this is the beginnings of filmmaking, you know, like this is the stuff that we kind of take it uh, for granted now, I think. And when you see the origins of these people that were just figuring this stuff out, it's kind of cool. And I definitely appreciated it, you know? Yeah. I was thinking a lot about that in, in terms of just how scary it was and to what extent it's scary to a modern uh, viewer, mm-hmm. you know, you just have to like, like reminding myself that like, this was in a way like the starting point, like all of, all of our additional scares and uh, stylistic changes and how we scare people is built upon this. Yeah, totally, man. I mean, this is the foundation. And I try when I watch a movie like this, I try to put myself into the headspace of a theater goer in 1931 and it must have been terrifying, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I was I was looking around at some of the uh, the, the initial responses to it, particularly from the censors, uh, because there were various people who thought stuff was blasphemous. Uh, but I also ran across this this wonderful um, bit from the uh, from from the from the Irish film censors records from a censor by the name of John the James Montgomery. Mm-hmm. And so it was initially banned in Ireland before then, then being reversed, and they, they, they showed it. But this guy's uh, write-up said, uh, and this you can find this on the, the online archive of the Irish film censors, but it says, I cannot issue a general certificate licensing this film for exhibition to audiences containing children or nervous people. It is a horror, and notwithstanding its grotesque absurdity, its cruelty and brutality would have a demoralizing effect on many. I reject the film as being unfit for exhibition even to an adult audience as it panders to the morbid and unhealthy-minded. <laughs> I love it, man. I would put that on the poster. I'd put that pull cord on the poster. Totally, because, dude. Uh, That'll bring in, uh, put some butts in the seats. That does remind me of, uh, I think it's worth mentioning that this film was a, considered a pre-code film, yeah, mm. meaning the Hollywood production code, which uh, basically was responsible for censoring films from the mid-30s to, until about the 1950s. And that's, uh, you know, the era when you saw where, you know, you couldn't show anything, you couldn't show sex, you couldn't show uh, a married couple sleeping in the same bed, you could barely show people kissing, stuff like that. And so 
pre-code was this kind of area in like the late teens, 20s, and up to the early 30s where you saw a lot of these films being made with watching them now, you're like, oh, this is actually some pretty risque stuff for for the time. Um, and this, this film falls into that category. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning, Robert, you were talking about censorship. I looked a little bit into that too. And um, one of probably the most notable aspects of, of the censor board uh, coming down on this film was the scene with the little girl, Maria. And uh, basically this is the scene where he meets the little girl by the lake and they play and then he picks her up and throws her into the lake. It's brutal. And it's brutal. And this scene was originally cut by the censors, at least the end of it where he throws her in the lake. So I think it was kept when they're playing, but then when he actually kills her, uh, they cut that out. And in fact, the footage was considered lost for many years and it wasn't until the 1980s that I think it was the British National Film Archive uh, found it somewhere. And since then, it's been re reinstated <laughs> into all subsequent releases of the film. Could you imagine that day <laughs> where some like Brit was like, we got the shot of the girl going into the lake. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been fantastic. Imagining the film without that that ending to that scene is it's hard because to me that... That's probably my favorite scene of the movie, and it's it's such sort of like your Rosetta Stone for understanding what the film is is after in terms of the themes. Yeah, I mean, that scene is tough. I mean, they really lay it on thick. It's like, let's get this cute little girl, let's give her a goddamn kitten, and let's have her <laughs> holding a handful of daisies. <laughs> like, the only thing she didn't have was a bluebird on her shoulder. <laughs> and uh, you're right, though. I think thematically that's the only sort of connection he makes human connection he makes in the whole film. Because like you said, he has this childlike mind and she shows him the flower and how she turns it into a boat and how it floats. And then he does the same, <laughs> just tosses her in there, man. And and the presumption, he kind of blocks the, the, the shot, but the presumption is that she drowns, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause later you have her father bringing her, like soggy corpse into town with that, you know, drawn look on his face. That was one of the mo more disturbing sequences, I think, in the movie was was that shot where he was walking mm -hmm. through town because you see all the people partying and having a good time. And as he passes each group, they they all sort of just even the kids kind of go blank and stop what they're doing. And uh, yeah, that one actually affected me. It's, and it's a very I think it's done almost all in one long tracking shot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As he enters the town, and, and like you said, you can hear the, the festive music in the background. And as he keeps walking, that music gradually dies out. And yeah, it's it's very effective for me as well. Uh, I did see a thing, too, in the censors where, I mean, you know, it's Fra the story of Frankenstein and his monster. So there's obviously a God complex happening. But the the line where he very much on the nose just straight up says, you know, I know what it's like to to be God. And I know that line. In pre-code, they were cutting, you know, different municipalities and different states would cut what they wanted. And a lot of them apparently wanted to cut that line because of the blasphemy. Uh, I read that, I don't know if you guys ran across this as well, but apparently the state of Kansas requested cutting uh, 32 different scenes down. <laughs> and if they had, for being, you know, offensive or blasphemous, et cetera. But if but they if if they would have made all these cuts, it would apparently have cut the film in half. And of course, the film already <laughs> yeah. is a glorious seventy one minutes long. Yeah, it's pretty pretty lean. <laughs> well, and that's kind of what's fun about the story is they jump right in. Um, you know, it was a time where 
movies were much simpler, I think, plot wise. And um, I, I love early on that they they basically he's trying to keep this whole thing a secret. You know, he's got this big project to create a, a living human being. And he, it's he didn't want anyone to know about it until they knock on the door and call him crazy. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, yeah, well, come down here. I'll show you who's crazy. <laughs> he invites everyone down there to see. <laughs> that was pretty good. And just, uh, you know, talking about the length of this film, a lot of these universal horror films are in the 70 to 80 minute range. And I think for any like filmmakers, aspiring filmmakers out there, I recommend watching these just because you can learn a lot for how to make a very lean film, you know, and get get all get all your points across in less than 90 minutes. I, I love the the, the, the runtime on this I, I, because I often find myself checking out films that are, are maybe not that great. And I always look at the runtime to just see how much of the the stuff that doesn't work I'm going to have to endure. Mm-hmm. And it's, <laughs> it, there's something uh, like, you know, it's, it's nice to see, well, whatever happens, it's only going to be 70 minutes. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And, you know, that's a good message to filmmakers. If you're going to make a B movie, make it short. Yeah. You know, you don't want to have people sitting around for too long. Uh, another one of my favorite lines was, I think he's talking to, uh, who was the, his mentor? Uh, was it Waldman? Yeah, sorry, Waldman. Is it Waldman? So yeah, he was talking right. to him and Waldman is sort of judging him about his sanity. And he goes, I am astonishingly sane, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something our president might say. <laughs> and, you know, I think Colin Clive's performance in this is worth mentioning because he carries a lot, oh, yeah. a lot of the film outside of Karloff himself. Just with that, again, it's an archetype we've seen much of it probably derived from this film of the 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 sort of mad scientist who's convinced he can play God. And he just, you know, Colin Clive has those intense eyes throughout the whole film that sell a lot of what the film is doing. Yeah, he has a he has a nervous intensity in in the in these films and and I think I've only seen him in like three things. I also saw him in uh, the excellent Peter Lorre movie Mad Love, but in all of those films he he has this there's this this nervous intensity about him, you know, and uh, I wonder how much of that is just like part of Colin Clive himself because I know he had a lot of uh, personal uh problems but it was it was also just a tremendous actor but yeah he brings a real presence to this he might have been on speed too (laughs) it's well you know mentioning his personal problems he's kind of a a sad story he actually died uh in 1937 at the age of 37 oh wow so only only a few years after this movie came out and um what i read was yeah he was uh suffered from chronic alcoholism uh uh, and i think though he died from I read complications from tuberculosis, but I guess his alcohol alcoholism was was a known entity. Um, a lot of times, people talked about him being, um, you know, inebriated on set, and it it uh, made him difficult to work with a lot of the time. But just kind of a, a you know a very sad ending for a, for a very talented actor. Yeah, it's um, interesting to think about. I think people think like drugs and alcohol is sort of a more modern problem, but uh, when you hear about stuff like this and Lugosi and his opium addiction and whatever other drugs he was doing, um, that you know, I think since there have been drugs and alcohol, people have been abusing drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, the monster reveal I thought was really interesting too in this, um, and that was one of the notable parts where I think I missed a score. Um, because he quietly sort of moonwalks into the room <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then does this 
turn to reveal his face. And that's usually when you're like, dun, 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 you have like the big score happening. Uh, but it was a, it was a cool reveal and the, and the monster created, you know, the monster makeup was great. It looked really good. I'm not surprised though, that the, the, the monster reveal of having the monster walk backwards into a room that that didn't catch on, that that didn't become the, <laughs> right. the iconic moment. Yeah, it like is funny though. Jason Voorhees walk into the room backwards <laughs> and then jazz hand it with the, with the hockey mask. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you will always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can even alert you before you go too low or when you're too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see, like more time and range and lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. It is funny, though, how um, we talk about how these these movies even if we haven't seen them they're so sort of ingrained in our culture and i think about frankenstein in particular like any cultural depictions of frankenstein today are almost always directly based on this this karloff uh version of frankenstein where you've got the bolts in the neck Mm -hmm. and the sort of flat square head i mean you think about like kids with their little trick-or-treat bags and it has that face on it or something yeah man and then it's all indebted to this to a very a very good moving performance you know yeah, and you know, over the years we've seen different Frankenstein's. Um Universal has been uh they they have the rights to all these monsters, so they've been making these movies kind of over and over in different iterations over the years to varying degrees of success. Lately, not much. I know those Brendan Fraser mummy movies did pretty good, but I, I know the Tom Cruise one bombed, that Wolfman movie they did not too long ago bombed. Uh I remember the Frankenstein movie with De Niro. Uh, years ago i don't know if you guys saw that um i thought that it wasn't a great movie but i thought creature wise he looked pretty cool it was a more realistic take 
Mm-hmm. It wasn't the bolts through the neck and the big flat head. It was, it looked more like he had been stitched together, you know, like a skin suit. And that, I mean, that one was certainly, of course, more true to the novel too, of having Frankenstein's monster being not just this, not just this, uh, this sort of brute and, uh, you know, sort of feral creature, but mm-hmm. having an intellect and, and being capable of, you know, of reasoning and figuring out what was wrong with his plight and raging against his creator, all these Miltonian qualities, you know, that are, that are very much part of the book. Uh, it sounds like you've read the book, Robert. Uh, yeah, I, I, I read the book. It, it, um, I think I was, weirdly enough, I was inspired to read it, not by um, the De Niro film, but in 1992, there was a TV movie version of it that starred Patrick Bergen as Dr. Uh, Frankenstein Whoa. and Randy Quaid as the monster. <laughs> and I have no idea if it holds up today because I haven't seen it since I was, uh, since 92 That's or so. That's great. But, at the time, I loved it. I was like, this is Frankenstein. Now I'll read the book. I am Googling Randy Quaid Frankenstein as quick as my little fingers will type. Same. Okay, I remember this one. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I think it came on TNT back in the day. It looks like he's wearing a fuzzy uh, like hair suit. Very interesting. Like a Bigfoot suit. Yeah, and on Paul, if you look up the De Niro Frankenstein. yeah. It's pretty pretty chilling. Um, I mean, that's definitely a more realistic take on what someone might look like. But I don't know, man. At the end of the day, I'm going with Karloff. It's so iconic. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Herman Munster was based on, like a TV show that uh, Robert and I probably grew up watching. I don't know if you watched mm-hmm. it, Robert, but I certainly did. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's something about that, that flathead and those bolts, man. <laughs> Kids are still uh, dressing up like that, like you said. I never understood the flat head though. Like I was talking to my wife uh, about this, and she was like, "Why the flat head?" And I'm like, "I I don't know." Like you know, the electrodes know. or bolts make sense, uh, but yeah, why the flat head? Is it because uh, you know he had to probably he inserted a brain into a skull, uh huh, and maybe I always thought maybe either <laughs> that made the head bulge, or maybe the top of the head is supposed to be like from another body or something. And it's sort of some mm. weird, you know, trying to meld two different skulls together. I don't know. Or maybe it's just an aesthetic choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I never really thought about that. I could see maybe if they put in the brain, like cut off the top of the head, put the brain in, and then uh, the rest is, I don't know, plywood? <laughs> I'm not sure. If they put Fritz in charge of the uh, of covering it up, that's the problem. <laughs> oh, Fritz. I got to say, I hated Fritz so much. It was very satisfying to see him swinging by his neck yeah. uh, when they finally come in there and sees uh, that the monster had gotten a hold of him. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's you know, Fritz is the very first person who uh, basically is mean to Frankenstein, or to, excuse me, to the monster. Always mm-hmm. important to remember that Frankenstein is the scientist. That's right. The monster <laughs> is the monster. Uh, but, but, you know, when we first meet the monster, we it's that shot we mentioned earlier of him holding his hands up to the sunlight. And then immediately after that, Fritz comes in with a torch and just sort of harasses him, like you said. And, you know, again, if we think about Frankenstein's monster of having the sort of intellect of a, of a young child, of course, he's going to react adversely to that. And that's, I think, plays into what, for me, watching the film this time, the sort of, if you want to boil it down to one important theme, it's sort of the idea of nature versus nurture and how... You know, even the film seems to say, even though the monster is created from the brain of a murderer and stuff like that, he isn't fated to be a murderer himself. In fact, the only reason he 
he kills people is because he is attacked first. He never, you know, draws first blood, so to speak. Right. Yeah, that was another funny moment, too, though, when he is talking about the brains with Waldman. And he that's when he reveals he was like, well, no, the only brain that was stolen was the bad criminal brain. And the, and the look that goes on on Frankenstein's face, and he's kind of like, I'm sure it'll be okay, basically. He kind of <laughs> just plays it off like, oh, I didn't know that, but uh, it'll be fine, right? <laughs> uh, and I also love how cranky uh, the Baron Frankenstein is, his dad. Oh, yeah, the old man. <laughs> he's so he's, good. He's great. And um, it's so weird at the end. Now, I understand that they the, the ending is the upbeat ending that the studio insisted on. But after all of this, this, these struggles between mad scientist and monster, like we end it with that weird wonky scene so weird. where he's out there just having a bit of champagne with the with the uh, the help, uh, and it's like, what? Why is that? Why is that the moment we end on? It was a very weird last shot. Um, it was like ten, ten handmaids basically giggling. Uh, and trying to serve wine to the re- recuperating Frankenstein. It was very strange. Yeah, and the, the old man's like, oh, he doesn't need yeah. it anyway. Give me that glass. <laughs> it is funny, though, because that very last moment, he takes the glass and he gives a toast. And I think he says something like, a toast to my fu- to a future grandchild or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of this actually kind of ironic note, because if you think about, you know, Frankenstein's desire to play God, he sort of already had, he creates his own son, so to speak. And it's sort of this ironic moment where it's like, oh, to a future son, even though Frankenstein had to kill his firstborn, in a sense. Oh, okay. All right. That does work. Look at you, Paul. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about that whole last, that whole last like 15 minutes is, um, for me, kind of the, the truly terrifying part of this movie. Um, starting from when I mentioned earlier, when Maria's dad brings her body back through the town square, uh, which is also kind of fun to think about that being shot in, you know, Burbank on a back lot in Burbank. Um, but from that moment on, it is truly scary um, with the torch wielding mob and those dogs, the bloodhounds barking and just the cacophony of all that noise and the hunt for uh, Frankenstein's monster that ends in the burnt in his like burning at, at that mill, it's all really scary to me. Yeah, the whole like just the the the, the mob mentality of the uh, the situation. Even though I guess you know you can you can certainly make an argument that they have a righteous cause and there's a an actual monster murdering people, but still, it's it's it, it, I, I found it a little unsettling to watch you know all, all these these people come together and just grab torches and head out. And then weirdly enough, like Vic, Victor Frankenstein is there, like yeah, let's go get him, and nobody's mad at him. He's the one who made the monster, yeah. but he's just fallen in with the, uh, uh, the, the the mob. Yeah, it never really does come back to him, does it? Well, that's what's interesting, too, is I want to hear what you guys think about this, but uh, it's not really explored in any depth in the film, but the sort of the politics at play between the Baron Frankenstein's family and the rest of the town, because it's taking place in in some kind of like Bavarian Alps region, it looks like. Mm-hmm. And if he's the Baron then he's the wealthy landowner and then these are all the peasants and the fact that you know as you said when they bring the girl's body they go to baron frankenstein's house because it's like oh he's the one in charge he's going to decide what we do and yeah you, you know it's ultimately uh henry frankenstein's fault 
if you know for creating this monster that led to all this and yet he's never uh he never gets any sort of punishment or come up and because of it yeah that's a good point um maybe that happens later they they do at least allude to it a little bit in in bride uh of frankenstein which you know which which definitely grabs some more elements from uh from the original novel and and uses those uh but there i think there's a scene where um uh, essentially the villain of that piece this sort of rival matter mad scientist um uh, uh named uh, dr uh, pretorius i think he is he kind of threatens um frankenstein by by letting him know that he might he might let the townspeople know that he's responsible if i'm remembering that correctly oh uh, okay interesting so what is the story there does he create uh is there a frankenstein's monster or is it just the the woman version it's both. So it's it's kind of a situation where uh, Frankenstein is, he's like, I'm not doing this anymore. But then the mad or mad scientist, Dr. Pretoria, shows up and he's like, no, we're doing this. We're totally doing this. I've got my own experiments. <laughs> They're going great. What you're doing is great. Let's make a woman. And um, and so that's kind of what happens. So it's uh, weird science? The, uh, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's 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 weirder and and i i think it is the superior film um and it has it also brings in an, one of the other great humanizing moments for the monster from the novel when um when the monster lives with a blind man for a period of time right i read the novel uh, i took a a literature of horror class at uh, in college at georgia as an english major and i read uh that and i read bram stoker's dracula and then I think it was, those are the only two novels. And then it was a bunch of short stories and stuff. But um, I remember really enjoying Frankenstein. I thought it was good. It's good yeah, to read. It's, it's, it's a wonderful novel. And it's worth noting the full title of the novel is Frankenstein colon or the modern Prometheus. Yeah. Which is mm-hmm. a great, great title. Totally. Um, let's jump back to the end of the movie though. Uh, when they, I thought it was a really good special effect. However, they did it when they threw when the monster threw Frankenstein off of the mill and he caught himself on the windmill blade. Yeah. Uh, which ended up sort of saving him from probably being thrown to his death. But I'm not sure how they did that, but it looked pretty good for 1931. It looked to me like a, uh, like a dummy that they threw. Was Am it super I Dave loved? Osborne? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I mean, I could be wrong. I thought it looked pretty good though. I mean, it looked I'm not saying it didn't dummies. look good, Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but I'm still kind of sh- I I was kind of shocked that he still survived after hitting the windmill blade and then falling again to the ground. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, he must be dead. Oh no, okay, he's alive. <laughs> uh, and there was a lot of great firework, um, which I'm sure was not safe at all. Oh God, can you imagine? Now, yeah, there's that early scene we were talking about where Fritz wants to burn him with the torch, uh-huh. and uh, Frankenstein comes in and scuffles with him. Yeah, yeah. Like I was watching the torch fall and it catches part of the set on fire uh-huh. visibly. <laughs> You know, and you just think, oh, my God, this would never fly today. Yeah, I kept waiting. Uh, I think I had um, anxiety, fire anxiety, especially in that last scene with all those torches, all those men. And they were sort of willy nilly with them uh, the way they were wielding them. And when they're actually burning the mill, I mean, that's a terrifying scene. And I'm trying to imagine a 1930s audience. It must have been horrible. I don't have anything to add to that. (laughs) I agree. You agree? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that's everything I've got on my list. Did you guys have anything else? Good movie. Worth watching. Oh, definitely. Uh, I I do feel like I want to stress to anyone out there that hasn't seen them to, to, to try and watch the first two. Uh, just because I do feel like like there's just so much about the first Frankenstein that has, again, just sort of been spoiled through culture. And you're just kind of, 
you you, you anticipate most of it uh, as it occurs on screen. But but yeah, Bride of Frankenstein adds just some additional weirdness and some additional intrigue to the basic uh, premise. And uh, and sometimes you find them packaged together. I know um, to watch this one, um, my podcast partner Joe lent me his box set of Blu-rays, uh, Universal Classic Monsters, The Essential Collection. Oh, cool. Uh, and yeah, it's a really gorgeous set. And it has um, wow. it has like several of these films we've been mentioning. The original Mummy, The Wolfman, Phantom, Creature. We should have had Joe in here too. I feel bad now. Well, if, uh, you know, he's super into the different versions of the original Dracula. It was some sort of a Mexican Dracula. So you have, you have to hunt him down and ask him about that. Yeah, I'd love to ask him about the Frank Langella Dracula from 1979. Mm. That was, uh, have you guys seen the, uh, the Coppola Dracula from the 90s? Sure. Oh, yeah. Of course. I'm a big fan of that one. I'm a big fan of that one. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. I think I liked it back then, though. Does it hold it, up? It yeah, I watched it within the past year, and it definitely holds up. It's it's just like it goes full, like it just goes to you know 110 the whole time, and I love it because of that. Yeah, and again, Universal cranking these out all these years later. It's a they have a lot of valuable properties, and I think they're trying to figure out a way forward with them. Uh, even after the misstep of the cruise mummy and the uh, Wolfman thing, I know that Paul Feig has an original story for more Universal monsters. And he's great. Uh, and I, I didn't see the new Invisible Man movie, but I heard that it was pretty good and that it was probably a smarter way forward to try and bring it into uh, new modern sensibilities. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you guys seen that one? I haven't, but but likewise, I, I'd heard good things about it. Yeah, same here. And I think for me, just uh, getting back to the original Frankenstein, just the, the thought I sort of kind of ended on after finishing the movie last night was I mentioned, you know, the theme of nature versus nurture in the film. And for me, the, the what the film is sort of arguing in its own way is the idea that, you know, Frankenstein wasn't born a monster. He was turned into a monster. And I think that's best emphasized in, again, that scene with the little girl, Maria, mm-hmm. because it's worth noting that when Frankenstein first appears to her, she isn't afraid of him at all. The first thing she says to him is, hey, do you want to play with me? And so, you know, what it's saying here is that uh, cruelty and meanness isn't something one is born with. It is something it's something that is learned in society. And I think that's a pretty, you know, valuable (laughs) takeaway from a film that's, you know, ostensibly just a, a old cheesy horror film. Yeah, and I think the other takeaway is if there's a Fritz in your house, <laughs> got to get rid of him before he turns people bad because it's all Fritz's fault. Yeah, get better help. Yeah, get better help. <laughs> I hated Fritz. Oh, God, he's so annoying. That whip, he was whipping him. We're going to get a lot of comments on the, 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 Fritz, uh, the Fritz fan club here. The, Frit, the pro Fritz people? Uh, I don't I... think there are pro Fritzers out there. <laughs> I'd be shocked. If you're an undecided voter in that uh, election, then I don't know what to say. <laughs> uh, all right, guys, you got anything else? No, just uh, other than, you know, thanks for uh, inviting me on. I enjoy having an excuse to, to, to watch these films, to sort of uh, shoehorn them, you know, into the day. And uh, yeah, uh, this, was, this was great. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch a couple of more of these, I think. The Wolfman intrigues me. I would, uh, again, I have not seen The Wolfman, but of the ones I have seen, I would say my favorite are... Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and The Invisible Man, okay. which a uh, great performance by Claude Rains as the Invisible Man in that. And oh, yeah. 
I didn't even realize this till today, but all three of those were directed by James Whale. So, oh wow, good director right there. Sweet. All right, dudes. Well, thanks a lot, and uh, thanks you for listening. And we encourage you to go out and watch old movies. Um, it's a little bit different. You got to kind of wrap your head around it being a different experience. Don't bring your modern sensibilities in. Check those at the door, and try and appreciate something that was uh, that laid the groundwork for what was to come. Right, guys? Yeah, definitely. Hundred percent. Right. Bye, everybody. Movie Crash is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown. Edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce Market, Atlanta, Georgia for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.